0: Well, good morning. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. My name is Dwayne Spearman. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Today is October the 18th, and we are continuing to work our way through the book of Acts. Uh, last time we were together, we uh, well, we've been together Tuesday through Friday, but the last session that we had was session number 35, And that covered chapters 21 through 15 through 22 through 30. So that means we're going to pick up in chapter number 23 this week. Just always remember that the written studies are right here, uh, duanespearman.org, or you can go directly to it at directionalministries.blogspot.com. And of course, always remember that I do upload the audio studies as well to soundcloud and of course you could go directly to soundcloud and see those and then also i have the video studies of course this is just youtube so you could go over to youtube and see them there as well so um plenty of resources uh for you guys to study with so anyways we're gonna i'm gonna be pre-recording this a little early um this week's gonna be pretty busy for me Um, I'm going to be up and at them every single morning. I'm wearing my Liberty University hat this morning. Uh, Liberty football team routed Syracuse yesterday, the first ACC win in the school's history. So, um, pretty, uh, pretty neat. Proud of the Liberty Flames for what they did, but I'll be on campus all week. Uh, they are having what's called Global Focus Week, so I'll be on campus, um, sharing in classrooms about the opportunities that our organization, the Network of International Christian Schools, has for them to teach overseas. So this week I should be okay getting up every morning around 6.30. So the 6.30s should go off without a, uh, a catch uh, all week. But this morning I do need to, I'm already running a little behind, but I need to be out of here by 8 o'clock. So just to get over there and start getting set up for the week. So with that said, uh, we're going to start working our way, if you could, just go ahead and look in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 23, verse number 1, and um, we're going to pick up and review what we studied this this past week. I um, remember that uh, Paul had, um, he was in Jerusalem, <laughs> just, just like he wanted to be, and um, he began to you know, speak, you remember he came down into Jerusalem and uh, of course the Jerusalem, uh, James and the elders, they didn't have a problem with Paul at all. They welcomed him. Uh, he, um, when he got into Jerusalem, he shared what God was doing uh, among the Gentiles and uh, everybody rejoiced in that regard. And then they shared what God was doing among the Jews that they were coming to the faith, in other words, responding to the the kingdom gospel, and they were zealous after the law. Uh, but then they brought to his attention that there were some Jews, believing Jews. And uh, when I teach, I make sure I delineate delineate between believing and unbelieving. Uh, the believing Jews had uh, believed the gospel of the kingdom; they were anxiously awaiting. Uh, the the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom. Uh, the unbelieving Jews, on the other hand, you know, those were the ones that caused Paul the most problems. And uh, but these were the believing Jews that had been informed that he is teaching the other Jews that they could forsake, they should forsake the law of Moses, that they shouldn't circumcise their children or walk after the customs. So they got together and they said, "You know we've got four guys that have made them that can, that have made a vow just like you've made a Nazarite vow and if you guys were to walk up into the temple together to do your sacrifice and offerings, it would look good and these believing Jews would see that uh, you you haven't been teaching that people should walk away from the Mosaic law, which is interesting that you know again those who say the church were born in Acts chapter number two, Why is Paul going through these desperate measures to show the Jews that he is still uh, not teaching against Mosaic law and circumcision and the customs? Why would he do that? Because, again, we are in a transitional period. There's a period of overlap here where you do have the kingdom gospel uh, being offered to the nation of Israel still. It has not been totally rejected at this point i don't think the the rejection was official until um paul had gotten all the way to rome um you know some would say that when he began to write the pauline epistles uh some would say it was at the fall of rome in 78 at the fall of jerusalem in 70 ad but somewhere in there i mean the the offer came off the table and Paul ceased. So Paul did not preach the kingdom gospel anymore. Um, the nation of Israel had rejected their Christ, their king, and his kingdom. So there's a there's a time of transition here uh, where both gospels are being offered. Uh, the gospel of the kingdom to the Jew, the gospel of grace to the Gentile. And that's what Paul is talking about when he got down and spoke to James and the elders. So he wanted to prove that He was not teaching against the law of Moses or circumcision or the customs. So him and the four guys went up into the temple. And wouldn't you know it, some Jews uh, came down from Asia. And these were unbelieving Jews that came down from Asia. Uh, This was not the believing Jews that was accusing him in Jerusalem. These were unbelieving Jews that had followed him down from Ephesus and uh, they saw them going into the temple. And um, they began to, the Jews that were from Asia, uh, began to stir up the people and said, this is the man that teaches everybody everywhere to not walk according to the law, this place. And further, they bring Greeks into the temple, accused him of taking Trophimus into the temple, but he had not at all. All of it was false accusation. So the city was moved Great uproar, uproar, tumult took place, and of course that's when we are introduced to the Roman, the Roman uh, soldier, the chief captain, as he comes in and uh, and rescues Paul uh, from the Jews that were literally trying to tear him apart. So, and then of course we know the infamous uh, line where Paul requested to speak to the Jews, to address the Jews after he had convinced the the Roman captain, that he was not the Egyptian that had led the insurrection in the wilderness some years before, and he allowed him to speak, and of course, they listened to him until he said, God told me to go to the Gentiles, and of course, that's when they, they, they rebelled, and uh, the chief captain had to remove him again so today we're in chapter number 23 and Paul has been dragged before um, before the council at the end of verse chapter number 22 we see that uh, Paul because he would have known of a certainty this is speaking of the the chief captain the chief captain delivered him to the council why because he wanted to know the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews he wanted to find out, If what Paul was saying was true, was he being accurately accused by the Jews of doing something? So he loosed his bands and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear. And he brought brought Paul down and set him before them. And then in verse number one, and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded them that stood by him to smite him on the mouth. Well, that didn't go far. Ananias was historically crooked as a dog's hind leg. Josephus says later that he and his brother were murdered by a band of Sicarii some years later after being caught in an aqueduct where he had hid himself. Um... So anyway, what comes around, or what goes around, comes around, or comes around, goes around. Either way, he got it. Uh, he was corrupt. And then said Paul unto him, God will smite thee, thou whited wall, for thou that settest in judgment after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. So interestingly, Paul uttered some prophetic words here. Uh, God will smite thee, and God did uh, use the to kill to kill him. To kill uh, Ananias. Um, and of course, Paul's Paul's uh, um, in verse number four, and they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? And then Paul said, I was not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So Paul apologized, not because his words were not true, they were. But because he did not realize who the, who the idiot was, he didn't realize that Ananias uh, was the latest one to buy his way into that position. Uh, Paul seems to point out, or he seems to be that he, Paul, Paul point, Paul's point seems to be that he was being accused of violating the law, and yet they were violating the law by condemning him without a fair trial. He hadn't even opened his mouth, and the and the guy already punched him in it. You know, Deuteronomy 25, uh, 1 and 2, or verse 2 said, And it shall be if a wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face, according to his fault by a certain number. But the thing is, he hadn't been accused yet. In verse number 1, if there be a controversy between men that they come in a judgment, that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. He's saying, you're already condemning me, and I haven't even opened my mouth yet. Um. So he's saying you're accusing me of violating the law by speaking evil against the ruler of God's people, but you're turning around and accusing and and condemning me without him a fair trial. So Paul's apology seems to stem from Exodus 22-28 "Thou shalt not revile the gods nor the rule or curse the ruler of thy people." Um. So to me, I mean, it's not like Paul had any respect for Ananias. But he did have respect for Ananias' position. Uh, and I think, you know, today you can have respect, and I think we should have respect uh, for a position of authority. Even though you may not like the man or the woman who's sitting in that seat, um, you know, a lot of people don't like a president. Well, you still honor the president. When I was in the Marine Corps, you always addressed the president as the honorable, the honorable Excuse me. When I I was in, it was Bill Clinton, the Honorable Bill Clinton, and I can promise you, nobody uh, that I served with um, had any fond feelings for Bill Clinton. Um, but you respected the office. He is the commander in chief. You know, it's just like a captain or a lieutenant that's over you. You may actually not like the person, but you do what he tells you based upon his office. And then in verse 6, but when Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, am I called into question? So Paul immediately perceives that his audience was divided, and he was going to take full advantage of it. Uh, The Greek word perceived there um, literally um, is the word konosko. Uh, it means that Paul had an intimate knowledge or absolute knowledge that the council was divided. Um, Remember that Paul was a Pharisee. He knew full well what the Pharisees believed and he knew what the Sadducees believed. Uh, They were both influential Jewish sects in Israel, very much like our system today. You could almost say they were the the, uh, Republicans and the Democrats. (laughs) The Pharisees, would have been the Republicans. They were constitutionalists. They believed, they believed that the Torah had to be obeyed uh, to the letter. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were leftist elites. They were Democrats in many ways. They believed that the Torah constitutions, it's a good guideline. But they were much more secular uh, in their views. The Pharisees were members of the middle class and were committed to upholding the Mosaic Law. Um, On the other hand, the Sadducees represented the aristocracy and leaned to the left. They embraced Hellenism and Greek culture. Uh, Leaders among the Pharisees were referred to as rabbis, um, while most of the Sadducees operated as priests. And of course, they both made up the Sanhedrin, but normally, historically, I think there were more um, Sadducees on it than there were Pharisees. Also, another difference that that Paul was taking advantage of here is the Pharisees believed in the afterlife. They believed in heaven. They believed in hell. They believed that a man would be judged on the basis of his adherence to the Torah and his works while on earth. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they did not believe uh, in a resurrection. So no resurrection, no heaven, no hell, no judgment. Um, and that is where Paul... Um, knew the division point was. Uh, And that's why in verse number seven, and when he had so said, there arose a dissension. When he had said what? Back in verse number six, um, he said, Paul perceived that the one part were Sadducees, the other were Pharisees, and he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. I am the son of Pharisee. And, the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. So it worked. Uh, in verse number seven, and when when he had so said, when he had so said what? The resurrection. When he said, of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. Uh, there arose a dissension among the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were divided by For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection, neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees confess both. So it worked. Uh, Understand that in the end, both of these groups had rejected the kingdom gospel. They had rejected the offer of the king and his kingdom. Um, That's why they were there. In verse number nine, and there arose a great cry and the scribes that were the Pharisees uh, part arose and strove saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So immediately the Pharisees, uh, because of their agreement with Paul in regards to the resurrection, they sided with him. And they said, you know what? If a spirit or an angel has spoken to this guy, uh, we don't need to be fighting against God. And there arose a great dissension. And the chief captain, here's our Roman hero again, Fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him by force from among them and to bring him into the the castle. So the Roman had to intercede again to save Paul's life. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness of me in Rome. So once again... Just like back in um, Acts eighteen nine and 10, when the Lord had to come to Paul in the night vision and say, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. I am with thee and no man shall set to hurt thee, uh, for I have much people in this city. So the, the Lord came to Paul again to encourage him to keep plugging away because he still had to go to Rome to bear witness of him. So, Paul was in the will of God. There is no better place. There is no safer place to be than in the will of God. There is no worse place and no unsafer place to be than out of the will of God. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Again, these are unbelieving Jews, and they were more than 40 which made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, and we will eat nothing until we've slain Paul. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down to you on tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. In other words, call down, tell him you want to talk to Paul one more time, and as they're transporting him down, we're going to kill him. He'll never make it here. Um, Again, uh, why were they so upset with Paul? Uh, Understand what Paul was accusing them of. When he says of the resurrection, they knew what Paul was preaching. Paul was preaching that this Jesus guy that they had killed had resurrected from the dead i.e., they had killed the Son of God. He was accusing them, just like Peter had, of murder. Um, And that was not a popular message at all. And when Peter's sister heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. So when, when 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 Paul's sister's son, so this would have been Paul's nephew, heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered the castle and he told Paul. Um, I pointed out Machiavelli. Uh, I think around 1517, he wrote he wrote his book. But he said, in order for a conspiracy to be successful, it must pass through all three stages: initiation, the plot itself, and the period after the plot. If it didn't go through those three stages, it was going to fail, and people were going to be caught. Conspiracies fail because so few can navigate all three stages successfully, he said. Conspirators who wish to succeed should keep silent about their intentions until the last possible moment. Why? So nothing leaks. The first, safest, to tell the truth, the only remedy against being discovered is not to allow the fellow conspirators time to give information against you and to tell them of your plan only when you're ready to act and not before. So obviously uh, Machiavelli wasn't written at this time, uh, but the... The conspiracy had leaked; it had made its way back to Paul's sister's son, and um, then Paul uh, called one of the centurions unto him and said, "Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and Paul the prisoner called me in unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who hath something to say unto thee." Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately, and ask him, what is that thou hast to tell me? And he said, the Jews, they have agreed to desire you that you would bring Paul down tomorrow into the council, as if they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. But do not yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of more than 40 men, which have bound themselves in an oath, that they will either drink nor eat until they've killed him, and now they are ready. They are looking for a promise from you. So the chief captain let the young man depart and charged him, "Do not tell any man what you've told me." So fortunately for Paul, God's providences—no doubt, but God's providence—no doubt, his nephew was able to bring the captain up to date in regards to the to the conspiracy, and again saved Paul's life. Um, you are immortal until God is through with you. <laughs> God had plans for Paul and his plan for Paul wasn't to die in Jerusalem. He wanted him to go to Rome. So Paul was going to go to Rome. Um, so, uh, I think, <clears throat> I think there's something special about this chief captain. I, I just, I just would not be surprised if we see him in heaven. <laughs> um, he sure did spend a lot of time with Paul, and certainly he he probably got to know Paul quite well. I just I just wouldn't be surprised if this this fellow um, believed the gospel, and I think had Paul preached to him, he would have preached a grace gospel to this to this Gentile. Notice verse twenty three, <clears throat> and he called in him two centurions, saying, "Make ready two hundred soldiers." So bear in mind, they've got 40. He says, give me 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen three score and 10. So that's 20, 40, 60, 70. So give me 70 horsemen and spearmen 200. That's my name in the Bible. <laughs> At the third hour of the night and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on him and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. So now the centurion, the Roman chief captain is very aware that they're trying to kill this man. So they get 200 soldiers and 200 spearmen and 70 horsemen. And in the middle of the night, the third hour of the night, um, they, they escort Paul away. So there's no doubt that the chief captain took this threat seriously. He knew full well that What the nephew had told him was true. They were going to kill him. And he wrote a letter after this manner. Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greetings. So this is the first time that we learn the chief captain's name. He first appeared back in chapter number 21 uh, when he saved Paul's life from the Jews. Again, I find it amazing how well this Roman officer had treated and protected Paul. Again, I just... I wouldn't be surprised if we might meet uh, Claudius Lysias in heaven. This man was taken of the Jews, this is the body of his letter, and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, I haven't understood that he was a Roman. Of course, you know, there's some details missing there. Uh, he didn't know Paul was a Roman the first time he, he grabbed him. Um, it was after they were flogging him that they figured out he was a Roman. <laughs> but, you know, details, details. And when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him, I brought him forth unto the council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but have nothing but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or bonds. In other words, it looks like the Jews are feuding among themselves about their law, which we don't care anything about, um, because I haven't found anything. Uh, that they've accused him of, that's worthy of death or, or bonds, and when I was t- when and when it was told me that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to you, and have commanded uh, and gave commandment to his accusers also to say before thee that they had against him farewell. So he gives an account of everything that's happened and how he handled it, um, and again understand the Romans could have cared less about Jewish law. Uh, if it wasn't a civil matter, the Jews didn't want anything, the Romans didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, but, you know, the Roman centurion, the Roman, the chief captain, he's not totally convinced of Paul's innocence completely. So he says, you examine him and see for yourself. And then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatrus. And on the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and return to the castle. So they delivered him, who when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, Felix, they presented Paul. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was Cilicia, he said, I will hear thee. And understand, um, Felix didn't care who he was if he wasn't a Roman citizen. Uh, That's why he asked him, of what province are you? And he said, I will hear thee. Uh, when when thine accusers also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. And then we enter into chapter number 24. And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders. So here comes all the pomp and the circumstance. And with certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. So who is Tertullus? Well, he apparently was an orator. Uh, that word is rhetoric. That word is where we get the word rhetoric. Um, he was going to serve as the prosecuting attorney against Paul. Uh, My next question is why. I mean, his name is clearly Roman. It seems that the Jews had hired him to make their case. Uh, Albert Barnes points out that it was most likely because they were ignorant of Roman law and needed his help to make their accusation stick. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him. Uh, began to slander him. That's where we get that name, slanderer, accuser, one of the names of the devil, by the way. Saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done into this nation by thy providence. So he begins to butter him up and wax eloquent with uh, being nice to Felix by thy providence. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, and with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto, the, unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us uh, of thy clemency a few words. So, verse number five. Now here's the accusations. We have found this man to be a pestilent fellow. We have found him to be a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world. And we have found him to be a ringleader of the sect of the Jews. He also went and profaned the temple. Now bear in mind, Felix could have cared less about that temple. Whom we took and would have judged according to our law. And again, Felix could have cared less about their law. So he lays out these accusations. The only three of which Felix were concerned with was he's a pestilent fellow, he's a mover of sedition, and he's a ringleader. Uh, when they say he's a pestilent fellow, that literally means he's a troublemaker. It's where we get the word pestilence, a plague. He's a disease. Uh, he's a corrupting influence on the Jews. Um, and of course, this goes back to the original accusation, which was uh, he's he taught other Jews to forsake the law of Moses and to not circumcise their children and to not walk in the customs. So they're saying he's a pestilent fellow. He's a corrupting influence on the Jews. Also, he's a mover of sedition. Now, literally, that means he sowed dissension among the Jews. Again, the accusation was that he was teaching doctrines that were contrary to the laws and the customs of Moses. And, of course, we know Paul was not. They were taking Paul's grace gospel and confusing it and saying that he was teaching that grace gospel to the Jews. Again, there's no way around that there are two gospels going on here, or this whole argument falls apart. Uh, If Paul was preaching the grace gospel to the Jews as he was being accused of here, he was guilty of everything they were accusing him of. Because the grace gospel doesn't teach we follow the law of Moses, or circumcise our children to be righteous, or walk in the customs the grace gospel doesn't teach that the kingdom gospel teaches that so the very fact that he, he's being accused of it means that he was preaching it <laughs> he was preaching two different gospels it's just their confusing confusion was they thought he was preaching the grace gospel to the jews and he wasn't and then the last accusation is uh, he's accused of being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. The word ringleader means one standing first in the ranks, point man. The point is that Paul was the primary instigator in this whole thing. And he's a ringleader of this sect. Uh, that word sect there is where we get um, the word um, heresy uh, in 24.5. Uh, He's a ringleader of this sect, of this sect. There you go. Heresis, that's where we get the word heresy in the Greek. Um, So he is the front man, he is the point man of this heresy of the Nazarenes. And of course, the word Nazarene is a reference to Jesus, the Nazarene. So he's being accused of being a pestilent fellow, a mover of sedition, and a ringleader of this heresy of the Nazarenes. But the chief captain, Lysias, came unto us, and with great violence, took him away from our hands. Now, he doesn't mention the fact that they were trying to tear him to pieces, that they were cursing and throwing dirt and ripping their clothes off, and they were getting ready to stone him to death. Uh, You know, again, details. Um... Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examination, uh, by examining of him thyself, mayest take knowledge of all these things where we accuse him. So, um, Tertullus here pretends that they would have judged Paul righteously, if Lysias had just left them alone, if he had not intervened. Um, but that was a lie. And the Jews also assented; they were all nodding their heads in the back like little bobbing dogs in the back of a car. Um, you know, they were just following along in agreement with Tertullius's assessment of how things would have, could have, should have went if Lysias just would not have intervened. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou has been many years the judge in this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. So Paul says, you know what, I can speak for myself. Because I that thou mayest understand that there are yet but 12 days. I've only been here 12 days. <laughs> and all of this has happened in 12 days. And they, need, they didn't find me in the temple spewed with anybody, uh, neither raising up the people. So he's saying, I wasn't a pestilent fellow. I wasn't a mover of sedition, stirring up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. And and they they can neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Everything they're accusing me of, they can't prove it. So he's disavowing every charge that's being laid against him. Of course, his defense is they cannot prove anything that they are accusing of this. But now this is where Paul turns the corner. But I do confess unto thee that I that after the way which they call a heresy, that's the sect. Of the Nazarenes, I do worship the God. I worship I, the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. In other words, I am a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. (laughs) I am a follower of this Jesus who I believe um, is is foretold throughout all of the Old Testament. That's basically what he's saying, through the law and the prophets. And I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So while he den- he denied being a seditionist and a pestilence, he does confess that I am a follower of the way. No- notice that after the way... That way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember, the sect of the Nazarenes. He's saying, I do confess that I do follow that. He goes on to say that he worshiped the God of his fathers and believed everything that was written in the law of the prophets. Well, guess what? The law and the prophets pointed to Jesus, (laughs) pointed to the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid that would come and redeem the nation and restore the nation of Israel. And that, he has hope in regards to the resurrection of the dead. I mean, think about it. If Christ be not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We are above all men the most to be pitied, Paul said. I do believe, excuse me, in the resurrection of the dead. I believe Paul is merely pointing out that he believes the law and he believes the prophets, but he believes they all point to Jesus. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So Paul says, I'm merely living my life uh, without conscientiously offending others. I'm not trying to offend others. That doesn't mean that he didn't offend because he did, but he never purposefully offended. He said, I didn't mean to offend these people. You know, Romans 12, 18, but if it be possible as much lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Paul said, I'm not purposely trying to offend these people. And now after many years, I've come to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia, again, that's these Ephesian Jews that followed him down, found me purified in the temple, you know, ready to fulfill his alms and make the sacrifice. But I wasn't with the multitude, nor nor with tumult. In other words, I wasn't trying to stir things up like they're accusing me of. So he's merely recounting what actually happened in the temple. He was just there to bring his offerings that were required to complete his vow. But these Jews from Asia, you know, they stepped in and they stirred up everybody against me. So he's denying, again, that he, he is a mover of sedition and he did not profane the temple, which is what they had accused him of back in verse number five uh, when he said, Uh, who hath gone about to profane the temple. How did they accused him of profaning the temple by taking a Greek in there with him? But Luke points out Trophimus didn't go with him into the temple. And in the verse 19, who ought to have been here before you and object if they had aught against me? Who's he referring to? The Jews from Asia. Where are they at? I mean, they're the ones that stirred this mess up. They're the ones that made the accusation against me. Where are they at? They should be the ones standing here right now. They were, quote, you know, the eyewitnesses to this thing. Or else, let the same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question this day. In other words, Paul is saying the only reason I'm here right now is they're upset with me because I'm preaching the resurrection of the dead. In other words, I'm preaching the Christ. I'm preaching that Christ was the. What's the grace gospel? Death, burial, and resurrection of the dead. Both the kingdom gospel and the grace gospel hinge upon the resurrection from the dead. In the kingdom gospel, he had to raise again from the dead, he had to be killed, but a will is not in force, a testament not, is not in force until after the death of the testator. Hebrews 9 says, Christ had to die, but he also had to resurrect from the dead so that others may resurrect from the dead. The same thing for the grace gospel. Um, Christ, the death barrel, and the resurrection is the grace gospel. Um, so he's saying, you know what, the eyewitnesses, they're not here. You know, the only thing these guys are accusing me of is preaching the resurrection of the dead. That's the only reason I'm here. In other words, the reason I'm here has nothing to do with Roman civil law. The reason I'm here is Jewish law, what the the Jews want to believe. And when Felix heard these things, having a more perfect knowledge of that way, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He knew he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection. He deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of this matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty that he should... And he should forbid none of his acquaintances to minister or come in unto him. Felix understood from that point on that this was a religious matter. This had nothing to do with Roman law. Uh, therefore, he says, "You know what? I just just send Felicius." And he placed Paul under house arrest, but he still allowed Paul to move and go and to have visitors. That obviously uh, made his accusers very angry. Because at that point, they realized that Felix wasn't going to do anything. Uh, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, which was a Jewess, so so Felix, a Gentile, had married a Jew, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You see, Felix knew exactly (laughs) what Paul was saying. Historically, I read a little bit, there's so much more here, but Drusilla had divorced her first husband, Gaius Julius, Archelaus Antiochus Epiphanes, to marry Felix. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. She was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. She was also the sister of Agrippa II. So old Felix had married up (laughs) quite a bit. Interestingly as well, both she and their son, uh, Marcus Antonius Agrippa, died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 99 AD. Isn't that interesting? And as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment, that doesn't sound like a grace gospel to me. He reasoned of righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. Felix trembled, answered, and said, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul is teaching righteousness, temperance, which is self-control, and the judgment to come means he was preaching the kingdom gospel to the Jews he because that's what he he I think he was remember the accusation was that was that he was not teaching that to the Jews he, the accusation was he was preaching the grace gospel to the Jews that did not require adherence to the law of Moses or circumcision or walking in the customs but no he was preaching the kingdom gospel to the Jews that did require observance of the Mosaic law and circumcision and walking in the customs it did require righteousness. It did require temperance, which is self-control, and spoke of the judgment that was to come. The judgment to come refers to what will happen at the second coming. And in the kingdom gospel, that's what they expected to happen, was the second coming. We both are looking forward to the second coming. (laughs) But the body of Christ, we are looking more to the rapture, The Jew is looking forward to the second coming. The second coming has nothing to do with the body of Christ because we're going to be gone at the rapture. The second coming has everything to do with the nation of Israel. So this is hardly a grace message. In response, Felix trembled. Understand that the kingdom message was a threat. Repent or else. Grace is just the opposite. And then we find Felix hoped also that money should have been given to him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore, he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. So apparently, uh, Felix was convicted. Felix was fearful of the, the law of the kingdom gospel that Paul was preaching, but he was still more concerned with money. He had some conviction and even fear of the prospect of what Paul had to say. But in the end, he was a crooked politician, and he wanted money. But after two years, Porcius Festus came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. So Acts 28.30 makes it very clear that Paul remained under house arrest the entire time. He stayed that way until Felix was removed and replaced by Porcius Festus. Historically, Felix was accused of using a dispute between the Jews and the Syrians of Caesarea as a pretext to slay and plunder the inhabitants. Though he was not immediately punished by Emperor Nero, Porcius Festus decided that he was too tarnished to remain in his capacity, and Felix later died of tuberculosis. But on his way out to appease Paul's accusers, he left Paul under house of arrest. So next time we get together, we'll pick up where Paul comes before Porcius Festus, and he um, appeals to go to Caesar. So Paul is going to go to Rome. So that's our study for the week. Uh, again, this is going to be pre-recorded uh, because I've got to be out the door here in just a little bit, but. Love you guys. Hope that you have a great week. Remember, God loves you, wants the best for you, working all things out for your good. And Lord willing, I'll see you Tuesday morning at 30.